0: In the Leviathan, published 1651, at the end of the decade-long English Civil War, Thomas Hobbes describes the state of nature as a state of diffidence. Now, he uses this term diffidence in a way that we don't anymore. For Hobbes, diffidence is not a personal disposition, but a state of society. It's a state in which no one trusts anyone. No one has any reason to trust anyone, and everybody knows that this is how it is. In a famous passage in the Leviathan, he writes... In such condition, there is no place for industry, because the fruit thereof is uncertain. And consequently, no culture of the earth, no navigation, nor use of the commodities that may be imported by sea, no commodious building, moving things such as require much force, no knowledge of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, and which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short... I'm your guest host, Associate Professor Mark Alfano, and welcome to In the Cave, an ethics podcast. Here to help us think about these issues today is Professor Kim Sterelny. Kim is a guest of the Macquarie University Research Center for Agency Values and Ethics, or CAVE, and he's also a professor of philosophy at Australian National University. Kim, welcome to In the Cave. Thank you. So I led off with a quote from Hobbes, one of the most famous social contract theorists in the history of philosophy. He has a pretty bleak view of human nature, uh, arguing that without strong political hierarchy in the form of absolute monarchy, society is liable to devolve into a war of each against all. In your recent book, The Pleistocene Contract, you paint a somewhat less bleak picture, arguing that human societies have gradually built up to larger and larger scales, first via kin altruism, then via reciprocity with non-kin, and eventually via group solidarity in larger collectives. Can you say a bit more about how your picture diverges from the one that we get from Hobbes? Well, one thing we do
1: know... Almost, and I think we can actually say we know from anthropology, and ethnography, is that you don't need a state for people to trust one another and for people to cooperate with one another. And for hundreds of thousands of years, humans lived in mobile forager communities, small-scale communities, but they're not—they weren't communities of endless violence. Of one against the other, they weren't communities in which no one trusted one another. They're not communities in which no one helped one another. You know, so that's just false. What is probably true is that communities of that kind are of scale limited. The mechanisms that make cooperative egalitarianism without social hierarchy work are scale limited, so they don't scale up to large s- scale societies. So you're
0: thinking of things like the Dunbar number.
1: Oh, it's, not the, not even that. it's partly the Dunbar number. And the Dunbar number is sort of a rough approximation. I mean, Dunbar treats the Dunbar number as if it was passed down by God <laughs> in, in letters of gold. But it, it is true the larger and more complex social relations get, the harder it is to sort of organise collectively without any form of hierarchy. So I do think... I so i do think these societies were scale limited it's also true that there's a fit there was a fair bit of violence in them you know because people get shitty with one another once arguments start and escalate there are no institutional mechanisms to de-escalate them you know so levels of violence were quite high Um, we don't know how high you know the reports are mostly from communities which are already being severely affected by colonial and other external influences so Those estimates are almost certainly exaggerated, but almost certainly these were, you know, often quite violent societies, but they weren't societies without trust. They weren't societies of permanent fear. They were societies in which you don't get the benefits of large scale. So some of the things that Hobbes begins with, in your quote, to do with industry and so on, you know, those are things which require scales beyond the ambit of these egalitarian communities. They did do some trading between them. There's there's evidence, you know, going back a long way, you know, of obsidian and, and other commodities circulating. I mean, it's known, you know, in Holocene Australia that commodities circulated, you know, over spans of thousands of kilometres you know so there was some trade but not very much you know I mean, apart from anything else trade requires cheap transport these people didn't have tr- cheap transport so there's some elements of truth in the picture you know that before sort of large-scale societies and hierarchy there were some benefits that we enjoy that they didn't but the picture is way darker than it should have been.
0: Yeah, so I guess I'm curious what you think about the level of violence in these societies. So was it primarily an issue of intra group violence or intergroup violence or both? It's
1: extremely controversial. You know, so there's a bunch of people who think that violence between groups was important and important early. I'm very skeptical about that view. I think violence between groups probably always existed, you know, because people get shitty with one another. It became a structuring factor, you know, of human social life, I think, basically with sedentary society and farming, because then people had stuff that was worth stealing and slaves were worth having. Mobile foragers virtually never have slaves, you know, because the cost of supervising them is too high. They've got to be armed, they've got to be mobile. You'd have to follow each and every one of them around with a spear yourself to make them work for you. There's there's virtually no economic benefit. But once you've got farming, you know, you've got the opportunity to coerce labour. And so... People's bodies became very valuable, you know, once subsistence farming got going. Farmers really like to force other people to do the work (laughs) because it's shitty work, you know. Um, In general, foragers quite like doing what they do. The early violence was probably mostly eruptive, you know, people getting shitty with one another, and occasionally kind of assassinating people who are just too dangerous to have around. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is ethnographic evidence. What I like to tell my students is not strictly true, and the evidence isn't all that good. But roughly, one murder is okay, but two or three people draw the line at that, and something bad is likely to happen to you.
0: So, what do you think of the human self-domestication hypothesis? This idea that violent males in particular would get picked off for being too dangerous to the rest of the community and that this somehow exerted an evolutionary pressure on the human species to be more tolerant of one another uh, and and less prone to violence.
1: I think that was one of the things that was going on, but I don't think it was the only thing that was going on that made people, that improved people's self-control and social Travis Pickering in his book Rough and Tumble who argues I think quite convincingly for the early importance of ambush hunting points out that ambush hunting requires lots of self-control and social tolerance. There's a lovely passage in a book by Richard Gould on Western Desert Aborigines where he's with a couple of Aboriginal males I think three from memory trying to ambush hunt for emu and he describes their sort of sitting in the in this really uncomfortable spot, ants and flies are crawling all over them, you know, their ass is being bitten the whole time. You've got to be still. You know, if you start moving around, it's not just the emus, you know, that might sense it, but small birds and so on, and they alarm call and other animals react to alarm calls of animals. So ambush hunting requires people to be still, self controlled, sit in close proximity, often in un- physically uncomfortable situations, often for really quite extended periods of time so he points out that if ambush hunting was important early that would have selected you know for a lot of top-down self-control a lot of social tolerance so I think yeah you know the self-domestication hypothesis puts it finger on one of the selection pressures that was operating to improve self-control and social tolerance. But I think it was just one of many. So I think like lots of hypotheses about human evolution, they like to pick out one thing and then think it's the master variable. I'm sceptical about master variables in this whole story. I think in general, you know, what we have See happening is the operation of a number of different factors operating together, you know, uh, in interaction. It's rarely true the single factor uh, is the sort of, is the driver, and I think that's what's wrong with the self-domestication hypothesis.
0: Great, thanks. So, moving on, in the book you suggest that reciprocity was likely an early form of human cooperation, and if I understand correctly, you think that it was a specifically direct positive reciprocity, mostly between women. That was one of the earliest forms. And that indirect positive reciprocity followed on its heels as people learned to sort of gossip about each other and influence each other's reputations. Is that right? And what do you think about the evolution of negative reciprocity as well?
1: I certainly think that direct reciprocity was important early because I am persuaded by the arguments that reproductive cooperation was important early. I think I've seen some, I think, quite convincing partly empirical, partly model-based arguments that even by homo erectus, women would have needed aid both in the birthing process itself and in the early part of of childcare. And I think there's certainly no demonstrative evidence, but I think it's very plausible that direct reciprocity would have been a major element of the emergence of reproductive cooperation because it's a Simple and stable form of cooperation. I mean, the women in the residential group would have known one another, they would have interacted frequently, so you've got the right kind of uh, window of the future. Confidence in, in future interactions. And also the fact that help is really important to get, but cheap to give. And these are all things that make direct reciprocity a stable form of cooperation. So that's why I think direct reciprocity kicked in early in, you know, human evolution. And of course, once you get the cognitive and emotional capacities for direct reciprocity, you know, in one domain, it helps it emerge in other domains as well. Uh, You've got the right kind of cognitive and emotional tools, you know, for considering Cooperation for 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 having an impulse to help and so on and so so forth. You know, so I think it was a sort of really important foundation, not the only foundation, but a really important foundation. You know, for getting it going. I think indirect reciprocity is more cognitively demanding because you've got to keep track of third party interactions.
0: Yeah. So this is where like Dunbar comes in, I yeah, suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You need something like gossip. You don't need the full. Maybe the full apparatus of language. You need ways of tracking what happens between third parties, and if you've got a dispersed economy, uh, you need you know ways of tracking what happens outside your immediate field of view. I mean, if the whole group moves together and forages together, then all you need to do is keep track of what. how third parties interact. If you've got a dispersed foraging economy where different people go off and come back uh, at different times, then you've got to know what's happened outside your field of view. And I think human foraging economies were very likely to be dispersed rather than concentrated at least in most cases and at through most time. You know, once you've got uh, high-velocity projectile weapons, hunting parties become quite small. Foragers who can hunt with uh, bow and arrow usually you know, hunt in groups of one or two rather than all the men
0: hunting together. Right. So I guess one kind of speculative question that this suggests is what happens now that we learn about each other second-hand, third-hand, fourth-hand, fifth-hand? I mean... I think famously you can get from any human to any other human in about six steps Uh, on the face of the earth at this point, which is a result, I think, due to Milgram, actually, uh, back in the 70s. You know, we've got this massively interconnected global society at this point, and also a society in which it's possible to have things like pseudonymity, anonymity, that obviously undermine the, the role of reputation, I realise that we're, we're jumping forward several, like 100,000 years. Yep. But yeah, do you have any, any thoughts about the role of reputation now? Well, clearly the
1: mechanisms that people relied upon a 100,000 years ago or even 10,000 years ago, probably even 500 years ago, are much more fragile now at best. You know, if you're getting information from people you don't know as distinct from people you've known all your life, you've got much, at least you need very different ways of assessing their reliability as sources, you know, you don't have your own personal experience to go on, and so at a very minimum, you'd need a transition in kind of warrants of reliability. And I guess in our world, we use this peer review and and the uh, reputation, you know, of journals and stuff like that. I mean, I I read stuff and I rely on stuff all the time, you know, written by people I've never met people I never will meet, saying things, you know, that depend on techniques that I don't understand. And so how do I know a carbon-14 date is reliable? Well, if the people who produce the carbon-14 date are publishing in a reputable journal, if they're certificated from reputable institutions and stuff like that, and especially if two or three different groups all agree on the dating then I think the dating is probably right or if it's wrong it's wrong for some systematic reason that no one now understands it's not wrong because someone's trying to pull the pull the wool over you know their peers eyes Uh, so that's that's how we do it and I think that's to the extent it can be done at all I think that's how everyone needs to do it but of course that's it's extremely imperfect i mean it was never perfect you know i'm sure gossip was sometimes malicious you know and sometimes you know back in the pleistocene people successfully you know started kind of you know unpleasant rumors about people but i think in general because these were you know small-scale societies uh, with multiple sources of information you know and from people who were very well known you know malicious gossips would probably have been had a reputation of being malicious gossips even even though it was never perfect it was probably quite highly reliable in small-scale worlds. Clearly, it's not reliable now.
0: Yeah, so that's an interesting point about peer review, and it relates to a question that I've been kind of pondering for a while now, which is, how is it that the motto of the Enlightenment and the motto of QAnon are so similar? So you you may know the, the motto of the British Royal Society is Nullius in Verba, take no one's word for it, and... In Kant's famous essay on enlightenment, he says that enlightenment is characterized by sapere aude, so have the courage to think for yourself. And one of the slogans of QAnon, this crazy conspiracy theory, is do your own research. And what you were just saying is like, well, actually, I don't do my own research most of the time. I take people's word for it.
1: You can't have cumulative construction of knowledge without taking people's word for it. You know, so you've got to have systems for working out whose word you're gonna take and whose word you're not gonna take. The point about the Royal Society of not taking people's word for it, and this does connect with peer review, is that they one of the conditions of being in the Royal Society and publishing at the Royal Society is that you had to explain how you got the result. So someone else could do the same experiment. Didn't mean that everyone else would. Whereas in the, I mean, as you will know, Newton spent kind of most of his time as an alchemist, you know, rather than as a physicist. And alchemy didn't have that tradition of openness about technique and so on. So I think the kind of contrast was between the Royal Society and its antecedents was kind of the contrast between the norms of alchemy and the norms of publishing your methods as well as your results and publishing them in as explicit a form as possible, rather than as sort of tantalizing metaphors.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I guess I'm also curious about other forms of cooperation, especially evolutionarily stable strategies for cooperation. So we've talked a little bit about kin altruism, about positive and negative reciprocity, group solidarity, hierarchical hawk-dove interactions. In recent work, Oliver Curry, the English philosopher has also emphasized fair distribution of resources and labor on the one hand uh, using work on bargaining games and respect for prior ownership. Um, Do you have any views on where these forms of cooperation came from, when they evolved, why they might have evolved when they did?
1: So some forms of respect for prior ownership I, I do have some thoughts on. I think where investment is needed people have to have some rational expectation of gathering the benefits of the investment. So you wouldn't invest days and days and days, say, making a kayak if you didn't get to use the kayak, indeed if you didn't have some preferential access to the kayak. kayak. Similarly, uh, I think in the early emergence of farming, Subsistence farming, especially when people started to depend on subsistence farming rather than encouraging you know, their, the stability of plant resources just by not harvesting everything or putting back a little, leaving half the yam rather than taking all of the yam and stuff like that. But when people started to depend on subsistence farming uh, and when it became a kind of labour-intensive, low-rate-of-return economy it would have been extremely irrational to invest in clearing land, improving land, irrigation, weed control, grubbing out the stones and stuff like that to improve the uh, crop rotation. All of these things are high a high investment, high labor costs and they wouldn't be stable as forms of social interaction. If you didn't have something that looked like ownership,
0: and that that could be individual ownership, but more likely clan-based or family-based. Yes, and based. it's
1: interesting to know when you'd get one versus the other. And I'm not sure what conditions are that would select for clan-based versus in, individual-based. There's certainly in the ethnographic record we've got. There's certainly both, uh, and you've got family-based, which is intermediate between the two. You know, uh, so you have all sorts of the the owner the owner ownership can be vested as it were you know in different sized groups all the way up from individuals to clans without something like that kind of investment needed would be irrational it wouldn't be stable you know so i think at least some forms of ownership are ways of stabilizing or at least have the effect of stable stabilizing investment and hence are selected either probably some form of cultural group selection are selected because they stabilize investment they make investment rational i don't think that works for every case you know and a case that's puzzled me is the respect for property rights for a kind of naturally rich resources like salmon runs salmon runs don't require that kind of investment yet there is ethnographic evidence of respect for ownership you know in cases like that and that isn't explained by incentivising investment. I mean, people with salmon runs do do some investing, billfish wares and stuff like that, but it's, the investments aren't of a kind that make it look rational, a rational bargain uh, for others to sort of grant property rights in cases like that. So I do think there are cases, property rights, that puzzle me, and there are cases of, of property rights that don't puzzle me, and there are some that are a bit in between, Uh, like rights to herds, you know, where there's certainly investment, but it's not as extreme as farming. And another issue that I don't know how to solve is under what circumstances do you get the property rights devolved to individuals rather than to corporate groups of some kind. So I've got some thoughts on that, but nothing like a complete story.
0: Well... I'm afraid that's all that we've got time for. I've been speaking with Kim Sterelny from the Australian National University about the evolution of human cooperation, society, trust, distrust, all the way from the Pleistocene to QAnon. And I hope that you've all found this very interesting. I certainly have. Thanks very much, Kim.
1: No problem. This
0: is a Piccolo Podcast production.